Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Have you ever heard of the Gospel of Judas? The Gospel of Judas, um, actually we've known about the Gospel of Judas since uh, 180 uh, AD when Irenaeus wrote about it and, uh, and, and spoke about it and said that it was a, a blasphemous falsehood, right? But the Gospel of Judas, we've known about it since 180 AD, but we didn't have a copy and no one had ever read it until after the 1970s. In the 1970s, uh, like so often has happened, they found a papyri in, uh, in one of the caves there in Egypt. And actually, no one knew what they had. It was passed around from antiquity dealer to antiquity dealer until one antiquity dealer said, wow, we're losing this. It's disintegrating. And he donated it to, uh, to Switzerland and to a foundation for the ancient arts there. And they preserved it. And they actually had uh, a Coptic translator translate the document. It was, uh, it was copied or it was translated from Greek into Coptic uh, around 300 AD, they, they, sur- they suppose. And what they discovered was that this was that gospel of Judas that had been alluded to back by Irenaeus back in 180 AD. It was not just that. It actually contained like four different books. It was uh, uh, a book written by James called The First Apocalypse of James. It had a letter from Peter to, uh, to Philip and then a fragment of a fourth book uh, as well. Now the manuscript, the gospel of Judas, what it claimed when they translated it was that Judas uh, had been revealed secret knowledge by Jesus, that Jesus had pulled Judas aside and had told him that he wanted him to turn him into uh, into the Romans, and that Jesus had given Judas this special vision which he had not given to any of his other disciples. And so Judas had this special knowledge from God, and he was actually under orders to betray Jesus to, uh, to the Romans. Uh, Rather than acting out of some other ulterior motive, Judas was actually doing the will of God and doing what God wanted him to do. Now, the Gospel of Judas broadly represents this thing we call today Gnosticism. It's the name we've given it. Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis or knowledge, and it was was kind of a, a... a conglomeration of Christianity and Judaism and pagan religions and, and basic Gnosticism taught that the key to knowing God is special revelation. It is knowing things, thus the word Gnostic or, or Gnosis or knowledge. And, and so this was just a, this was a typical Gnostic writing. And it was, it was shown to be false and shown to not be true by Irenaeus all the way back at the very beginning. It was rejected by true Christians as not being a, a real book. So what does the Bible actually tell us about, about Judas? I, I want to talk about Judas this morning. You may have figured that out already from the, the title and what we're talking about. I want to talk about Judas a little bit because he's the central figure in what we're finding in the Gospel of John this morning in chapter 13. Now, believe it or not, we know very, very little about Judas. We know that he came from, uh, from the city or town of Kerioth. That's what Iscariot means, uh, son of or a man of Kerioth. And so he was from the town of Kerioth. 
Kiriath. That's all we know. His father, we know his name was Simon. He was also from Kiriath, Iscariot. And so that's where he was from. But to be honest with you, that's all we actually know about Judas, that he was from uh, Iscariot and his father's name was Simon. The first mention we have of Judas comes when Jesus picks his disciples, his 12 disciples. You remember, he prays all night. He comes down from the, from the mountainside and says, I want you, I want you, I want you. And he picks 12 men who are going to be with him all the time. That's the first time we, uh, we meet Judas. We have absolutely no idea how Jesus ever met Judas to start with, how he became a father follower of Jesus, how he became someone that Jesus would even pick to be amongst the 12. Uh, all of that is veiled in obscurity, and, and we will never know it uh, this side of eternity. Most likely, Judas was, had did lots of ministry like all the other disciples. Everything the other disciples did, Judas did it. So when Jesus sent out the disciples, you know, and they went, uh, I think there was like 72 of them, and they went out and they did ministry, Jesus, uh, Judas was among them. So most likely he, he was someone who cast out demons and, and did all the things all the other men did. Eventually, Judas became the, the group's treasurer. We don't know how that happened. Maybe he was good with money. We don't know when that happened. But by the end of Jesus' ministry, Judas holds the purse strings. So he is carrying their money, the money for the organization. So he was clearly trusted by everyone. Towards the end of his ministry, I think Michael spoke on this a few weeks back, but uh, we, t we saw the story of Mary breaking the jar of perfume and anointing Jesus for his death. And Judas, of course, is one who speaks up and says, wow, that money could have been saved for the poor. And if you'll remember, Judas, I mean, Jesus rebukes Judas for that statement. And he says, the poor you'll have with you always. What she's done has been a good thing, and it's going to be proclaimed throughout the ages. And of course, we still proclaim it today. In Matthew's gospel, in, the cha in chapter 26, the 14th verse, just listen, uh, we, we, we see that right after that, something happens to Judas. And we read this, then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, why did he do that? Why did he go and strike up that deal with the Pharisees? Well, some people have suggested it was spite because Jesus rebuked him in front of Mary and everybody because of what Mary had done. Some have said it was spite because of that. Others have suggested it was greed, that he was upset uh, about losing the money that the sale of that perfume would have brought to the coffers of the, of the disciples, that he was upset over losing that money. So this was his way of getting even with Jesus and getting money that he could pilfer, that he could still. Others have attributed to Judas more altruistic motives. I think as a young Christian, I kind of felt this way, that maybe Judas was just misguided and wanted to precipitate Jesus, excuse me, being made this political Messiah. In other words, maybe he did this, you know, out of good motives. He wanted to force Jesus, good motives from his perspective, force Jesus to be the political Messiah that he thought he ought to be. The truth is, the, the motivation for, for why Judas did what he did is lost to us. I mean, it, it doesn't tell us, so we can speculate about it, but we don't know for sure why he did what he did. 
Now, John's attention in his gospel now focuses on the night before Jesus is to be crucified the next morning. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and we said that from here on out to the crucifixion, we're basically, we're going to spend the evening with Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus is going to be teaching them. John's gospel, chapter 13 through around, I think it's 17, I believe it's 17 or so. I mean, this, this is some of the greatest teaching that Jesus delivered to his disciples, and that's what we're going to be studying. This is the beginning of that night, and if you remember in context, Jesus has met with them. He's changed the Passover meal and said, this is no longer going to represent for you the, the fact that uh, God freed you from Egypt. I want this to represent something different for you. I want this to represent this new covenant that I'm making with you. And he changed the elements of the Passover meal that night. And, and you remember he also washed the feet of his disciples that evening. You remember this, right? They were arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garment and, and sits down with a pot and begins to wash their feet. And, and that was what we talked about last time. And this whole call of God to servanthood that all of us, all of us should be racing towards servanthood. We should want to be servants. We should want to serve others, want to serve one another because of what Jesus taught us that night. So in that context, Jesus has, has washed their feet and we pick up our story in verse 18. Have your Bibles? John chapter 13, verse 18. I'm not speaking about all of you, Jesus said. I know those I have chosen. You're talking about the 12. But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. And I am telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me. And the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. So in the context, Jesus having washed their feet, he says, you know, I just washed y'all's feet, but one of you is about to betray me. I chose you. I know who I chose. And one of you is about to lift up his heel against me. That's metaphorical. It's the idea of how we take our heel and we squash a bug or squash something. That's the idea. Somebody's about to use his heel against me. And he says, really clearly, it's, it's one of you, but I'm telling you this now. I'm telling you now so that when it happens, you won't think, wow, Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because look what happened to him. Look, look how that caught him unawares, right? He's saying, no, it's not going to catch me unawares. I want you to know this is going to happen. I'm telling you now so when it does, you will know that I am he, that you'll know I'm the Messiah. In verse 20, it seems to be sort of odd and out of context. Truly, Jesus says, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. I'm not sure what Jesus means by that, but this is my thought. He's simply seeking to encourage the other 11 that though one of you is going to betray me, if, if you belong to me, you belong to God because God has sent me. If you're with me, if you're for me, uh, you are receiving the Father who has sent me. Makes it really clear, you, you, one of you is going to betray me. Matthew's gospel adds more details. Again, just listen. Matthew writes, 
He who, just as Jesus speaking, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The son of man is to go just as it's written, but woe to that man to whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So here's, here's what Jesus says. He says, he says. he says it twice in two gospels. The one who dips his hand with me in the bowl. I remember as a young Christian, I thought that meant Jesus was saying that watch and see who sticks his hand in the bowl with me at the same moment, right? That's not what he means. He simply means that one of you who's eating out of the same bowl that I'm eating out of right now, one of you guys, you're going to be the one who, uh, who betrays me, who denies me. Uh, it's interesting. Even Judas says, surely it's not me, Rabbi. Matthew 26, verse 25. To which Jesus responds, and I, have, I don't understand his response. Maybe afterwards, if you do help me understand it. Jesus says to him, you have said it yourself. I don't know what Jesus meant by that. But Judas asks, surely it's not me, is it? You have said it yourself. I don't know what Jesus meant by that. Back to John 13, 23. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was that he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. Now, this is really clear. I'm going to dip some bread, and then I'm going to give it to someone. He's the one. And when he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Jesus kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left and it was night. So let's assume that between verse 22 and verse 23, there's a little bit of time. You know, they could have been talking. Jesus could have said some other things. He says an awful lot that night. But in, in between 22 and 23, I think there's some time. And in verse 23, we read that, and again, you have to get this picture. They're not sitting at a table like we are. They're laying down, leaning on an arm, you know, stretched out in front of a low table, maybe a foot high off the ground, or maybe even on the ground, and they are leaning on an elbow and they're eating with their hand. And so Jesus is laying, and then inside of Jesus is John, inside of John is Peter, and John is the closest to, to Jesus, and Peter is the closest to John. And he says in a whisper to John, ask him who it is. And John does. And Jesus answers. It's kind of surprising, isn't it? I mean, it's surprising to me that Jesus answered. I guess it's that whole thing. I want you to know that I know what is about to happen. And uh, so he asks, and Jesus replies, it's who I dip. I'm going to dip some bread, and I'm going to give it. It's who I give it to. That's who it is. And he does it. He gives it to Judas. And then it says Satan enters Judas. So even though this is Judas' willful decision, Satan is involved in this. Satan uh, enters him, whatever that means. He takes some degree of, of leadership over, over Judas. Uh, but Jesus says to him, what you do, do quickly. And Judas gets up and leaves. Now, it seems like other than maybe John and, uh, and Peter, maybe they don't even quite get it, but people don't, they're not, they're not surprised, they're not shocked that Jesus said this to Judas. They don't think Judas is going to betray Jesus. They think he's going out to pay some bills or do something that needs to be done at that moment. So they're just, they're not even thinking like Judas is the one that's going to betray. But Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. 
The next time we see Judas is a few hours later. He brings the temple guard to the garden where Jesus is, Matthew 26. And while he was still speaking, that is, Jesus was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs with the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave him a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come to do. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Luke, betray- Luke adds to this account and says that Jesus said to him, Friend, are you going to betray me with a kiss? And the whole thing about the kiss, everyone, was it's nighttime, it's dark, so there'd be no mistake in when he points, he kisses Jesus so that everyone would know it's the one I'm kissing, that's, you know, in the dark, that's who Messiah is. Matthew 27 continues, now when the morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. And then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood, since it's the price of death. And, and they counseled together and with the money brought, bought a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For, the, for that reason, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, and they took the three, uh, 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave, him for, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So as dawn emerges, Judas is, is just overcome by remorse. It has not evidently turned out as he planned. Uh, maybe it went further than he intended. Maybe, maybe his motivation was to force Jesus to you know, rise up and be this political leader, and Jesus didn't do that. Whatever the case, he's mortified. He's racked with guilt. He takes the money back to the, to the Pharisees. I think he was hoping they'd change their mind, but they wouldn't, and an attempt to appease his own guilt and, 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 and whatever. He throws the silver pieces in, uh, in the temple, and he leaves and goes and hangs himself, commits suicide over how he's feeling. Acts chapter 1, verse 16, gives us a little bit more commentary on Judas' life. And then we're finished with, uh, with Judas. Verse 16, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. This is Peter speaking. He said, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received a portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, And of course, this is a commentary. Verse 18 is a commentary by Luke. Now, this man acquired a field with with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, the field was called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take." So if we combine these two, these two stories of what happened to Judas, here, here's, here's kind of, if we, if we synchronize them, here's what it seems happened. He threw the money back in on the temple, and the Pharisees said, well, we can't put this back in the treasury because it's blood money. 
And so they took it and they bought a field to bury homeless people in it that didn't have a place for burial, travelers, people who were coming through. So they bought a field. They actually bought the field where Judas hung himself and they bought it in his name. And so it evidently became known in the years that followed what happened, it became known as the field of blood. This burial place became known as the field of blood. And, uh, and so most people trying to harmonize, there's a word I was looking for, harmonize the two accounts. Evidently, Judas hung himself remotely, and, and then eventually when his body rotted and fell, it just burst open you know, from the rot. And, uh, and that's how Ju- Judas died a disgraceful death because it's disgraceful to die hanging on a tree, much less to be hanging on a tree to the point that your body uh, disintegrates as, as it did. So that's Judas. Can we learn anything from Judas? I think so. And, and as I've thought about this, uh, you know, I've been, I, I prepared this a number of weeks ago and I've been you know, reading on it and thinking on it ever since. And so I, uh, I have to tell you that I, I wonder about my le- the lessons, the applications today. How well do they fit us this morning? I don't know. Maybe the Holy Spirit will, will use this in a way that I'm not, I'm not aware of. But here, here are four lessons that I'd like you to glean, like us to glean from Judas' life. Number one, opportunity doesn't guarantee faith or a saving relationship with Jesus. In other words, you can have privileges that other people don't have, privileges of of learning about Jesus, of hearing about Jesus, of knowing about Jesus, and it doesn't guarantee that you're gonna be somebody who follows Jesus. Can you imagine anyone, seriously, can you imagine anyone who had more opportunity with Jesus than Judas and, and the other 11. Let's just lump them together. Can you imagine anyone who had more opportunity than Judas? Judas lived with Jesus for three years. And during those three years, he witnessed Jesus do things that no man can do. He witnessed him feed 5,000. He was one that carried the basket around and collected a whole basket full of food afterward. He was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He was on the boat when Jesus said, be still, and the storm stopped. I mean, Judas saw all of that. Judas heard all of Jesus' teachings He heard the Sermon on the Mount with his own ears. He heard Jesus talk about the coming kingdom and the narrow road that leads to life and the broad road that leads to destruction. He heard of Jesus, the warnings that he gave the Pharisees over and over again. He's heard the story of the prodigal son who, when he returned home, the father received him with open arms. He heard all of that. Judas, with his own eyes, listen, saw the clearest evidence, with his own ears heard the finest teaching, and with his own feet followed the the greatest example that had ever been. And yet, Judas still didn't have faith that led to forgiveness. Judas still didn't have faith that led to a a relationship with Jesus. And, And here's the thought that's really arresting, and it's this, we live in a country teeming with opportunity to hear all about Jesus to learn all about Jesus, to see Jesus actually transform people's lives and change their lives. And yet it doesn't guarantee faith. And here's something that may be even a little bit more disheartening, and it's disheartening if we put names with it, because we can put names with it. But, but we have been a part of a healthy church, a healthy church that sees living examples of men and women who love and follow Jesus. We, we hear Bible teaching 
We, 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 we have so much opportunity in our church family, and yet it doesn't guarantee faith. And the reason I say this is disheartening, because I could sit here and, and I could write out a list of a lot of young people that have grown up in our church family, that have been sitting here week after week, godly parents, godly men and women in their lives, and they're not following Jesus. Here's the lesson from Judas. And I'm not sure this is what I say. I don't know how it necessarily applies, but here's the lesson from Judas. Opportunity doesn't equal faith. Doesn't equal, doesn't, won't, doesn't necessarily bring about people filled, uh, filled with faith. Now, why is that? Why is it that, that Judas can walk in the presence of Jesus for three years and not put his faith in, in him? Now, I'm going to try to answer it from my perspective. This is just what I think, okay? So here, here's my answer to that. It's because God has given us a will and a certain degree of autonomy from God himself that we can answer that question. In other words, why does one person make a decision and another person make another decision? Why does one person choose to follow Jesus and not walk away, and someone hears and still walks away? I mean, I don't think there's an answer to that other than we are willful creatures with the ability to choose and make decisions that we make. And so we suppress the truth. In fact, the Bible says that in, in Romans chapter 1, I think it says most men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We, we choose to not follow Jesus because of what it means to us. Now, some of us, I already have alluded to this, but some of us have been and are like Judas. We have all kinds of opportunity, and we've had opportunity to learn of Jesus and hear of Jesus and see the Spirit of God at work in people's lives, and, and we're not following, and we're not filled with faith. Here's the second lesson. Man, these are serious. I'm sorry. I mean, these are sobering. Service to God is not the same thing as faith or a saving relationship with God. We must not equate a person's service of God with necessarily having a relationship with God or having saving faith. Judas wasn't a bystander, everybody. I mean, he was right there in the middle doing all kinds of ministry alongside everyone else. He was sent out by Jesus on two mission trips, all right? He was the, he was the uh, treasure. He most likely cast out demons and healed the sick because the disciples did that. He most likely did that as well. And, and if you looked at him from the outside, you would have said, well, he's definitely a follower of Jesus because, or he definitely knows the Lord or has a relationship with Jesus because look at how he serves in. But in spite of his service, he didn't, he didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Um, this is one of the most striking passages in the Bible. And those of you that know my story as a young college student, this verse was extremely troubling to me. But in Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, or at least in, in what, what uh, Matthew lumps together with all of that, he, uh, he quotes Jesus here in verse 22, where it says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I, Jesus speaking, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That was, that was an extremely troubling verse for me. 
because I knew that though I claimed to believe and I did religious things and, and, you know, I knew that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. I knew it. And this called it out. Here's, here's the point, guys. Just because people serve in church in different capacities, casting out demons, doing miracles, uh, you know, we don't do any of those things today that I know of very rarely. And, and, and these people were saying, because we did all of that, we knew you. Jesus said, I never knew you. So service is not necessarily an, an indicator that you and I have a relationship with God. There's a difference between knowing Jesus in a relationship and just doing things to serve the Lord. Now, notice that Jesus says, many will say to me on that day. Many will say to me on that day. Many, you know, Billy Graham says, many in the church don't know the Lord. Of course, who's Billy Graham? I mean, how does he know, right? Right. But Jesus does know, and he says, many will say to me on that day. If there's one glaring lesson from Judah's life is that you can be near the king, serve the king, but not be a part of his kingdom. Paul understood this. So here's what Paul said to the Corinthian church, and here's what I would say to the Castle Church family this morning. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Now, I mean, I'm not trying to get us to somehow doubt our relationship with God. I'm not trying to do that. But I am trying to say that God himself, Jesus himself, Paul later, I mean, there is this admonition to test yourself. Do you belong to Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Now, if you're like me, you're probably asking yourself, what's the test? Anybody ask that question? I mean, that's what I thought was, well, what's the test? How do I test myself to know whether I'm in the faith? Uh, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that there, there's not a, I can't, I can't turn you to a page and say, here, fill out the test, right? It's not like that. But, um, but, but here's, here's three questions that I would ask myself. Number one is, first of all, do you believe the gospel? Do you really believe the gospel? that Jesus came from heaven, left heaven, came here, became one of us, died for us, and his death is sufficient and substitutionary for me so that when I die one day, like him, I will rise again. Like him, I will live again forever, never to die again. Do you believe that? I mean, I think that'd be the first test, the test of faith. And and if you don't believe that, then... um, you know, then whew, we fail the test, okay? You fail the test. John wrote in his, um, in his letter, 1 John, he wrote this, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. The Gospel of John that we're studying, you remember at the end, he says, I'm writing these things so that you might believe in Jesus and that by believing in his name, you might have eternal life. So, so there's something to believe, but it's not just, see, here's where the test, I think, is bigger than just believing certain truth. So here's another thing that I think we should ask ourselves in the test, and that is, do you love? Do you love? Are you, are you a lover? Do you love God? Do you love do you love him? And it's hard to define that, isn't it? If you're like me, how do, I defi- how do I know if I love God? You know how we tend to look and say, this is how I know I love God? I serve him, right? But if you back up, I'm, I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that you can be serving God and not really know him, not really love him. So how do we measure love? I'm going to measure love like this. I'm, I'm going to suggest to you to measure love like this in what you value. What do, you, do you value God? 
John Piper says, and I thought this was really good, Jesus must be the sun at the center of the universe of our lives. So is he that to you? Is God the center of your value system? You know, I had a bunch of discussions with my nephews this week. It was, you know, in, in the four days that we were at the beach together, it was, it was, I had a lot of really good conversations, spiritual conversations there. And we were talking about this, what is the Christian life? And I told them, this is what I told them, I'm gonna tell this to you too. The Christian life is not hard. The Christian life is not a bunch of rules and regs that we live out. The Christian life is that you love God with all your heart and you love others. And I guarantee you, if you love God with all your heart and you love others, then you will do the things that God says in the scripture because those are all indicators of what it means to love God and love people. It's just about loving God and loving people. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if y'all think that might be just somehow minimalizing the Christian life, but I think it's aggrandizing the Christian life to love God with all my heart and to love people. That's the test. You say, well, I want something more practical. I want something more tangible. Here it is. Here's, here's, here's the more practical, tangible thing. Here's John again. We love because he first loved us, loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. You want to know whether you love God? Let me ask you, do you love people? Do you love your brothers and your sisters? Do you, do you love, I mean, if we can't love each other in the context of being the people of God, how in the world are we going to love anybody outside these walls, right? So, so here, here's the test, do you love? And here's my third part of the test, and I'm running out of time. Here's the third part, do, do you follow? Let's go back to the Matthew 7 passage. Jesus says, you know, many are going to say to me on that day, I served, I served, I served. And I'm going to say to them, Depart from me because I never know you, never knew you. Those of you who, you know what it says? Practice lawlessness. In other words, they're following or whatever, but somehow their whole life is not about, you know, following God, loving God. It's about practicing, practicing lawlessness, practicing sin. So, I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but I am asking you, do you follow Jesus? Do you follow the life that he laid out for us? So here's the test. It's just really, really, I think it's pretty simple. Do I believe the gospel? Do I love God and value him? And do, do I follow him? Do I actually live it out? Do I follow him? That's the test. So I'd really urge you, I'd really urge you to, uh, to take the test. Judas proves that we can walk beside Jesus and keep robbing the bank and never lose a second sleep. Right? You follow that? You understand what I'm saying with that? You can, you can follow Jesus. I mean, you can walk behind Jesus, say you love Jesus and, and serve, and at the same time be just totally disobedient to the Lord and never lose a second sleep over it. I think we need to lose sleep over our sin. I, I think we need to turn back from our sin. All right, number three, religiosity doesn't guarantee perseverance. And I realize I started early, okay? So (laughs) religiosity doesn't guarantee perseverance. Faith guarantees perseverance. Here's what I mean by that, and I I struggled over this, this, this lesson from Judas' life, but being religious doesn't guarantee that you are going to persevere to the end. 
So you can, you can look like a Christian today, act like a Christian today, and, you know, and then tomorrow or in the future, you can turn your back on Jesus and walk away. Uh, being religious today, following, claiming, proclaiming Jesus today is not a guarantee that you will always walk the walk and always talk the talk. I doubt the early Judas ever thought Three years as he begins to follow Jesus and he's excited about what he's seeing. And, and I mean, it's, can't you imagine seeing the dead raised, walking on water, storm stopping? Can you imagine that Judas and what he felt like? I mean, he would have felt like you and me. He would have never thought that three years from now, I'm the one who's going to betray this Jesus so that they're going to put him on a cross. He never would have thought that, but yet he did. He denied the Lord. It's hard to understand how a young person raised by godly parents in the context of a healthy church taught the truths of Scripture from an early age, grounded in apologetics, who actually embraces Jesus and stands with Jesus, can later give up on Jesus and deny him outright, but it happens. And it happens maybe more often than we want to admit. And even if it doesn't happen like in, in, uh, in my family's case and in some other family cases, maybe if it doesn't happen so blatantly, so, so um, vociferously in our family, in your family, people deny the Lord all the time by, I mean, even though they don't voice it, they've obviously denied the Lord and they've walked away from him. Many of us believe we, we will never, we'll never be Peter. I'll, ne I'll never, I'll, we're just like Peter. Lord, Doug and Sue may, they may turn away from you, but I'll never turn away from you. Dale may turn away from you, but I'll never turn away from you. We're just like Peter, right? And yet we end up being like Peter. And we end up being the one who actually denies the Lord. Paul tells us, he says, let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Now, the week that I was working on this message, um, with the week before I left for vacation, I, I went down into the new building, and there were some men working there. And there was a young man, and, and how it ends up, and I think this is the providence of God. But there's two men. I start talking to one of them, and they're in different rooms. And I go over to meet the other guy, and it's the other guy in the other room that I end up engaging. And I really don't know why, other than I would have to say it's a Spirit of God sort of thing. But as I start talking with this young man, this young man is a man who has obviously walked with God in the past. His, his verbiage, his Bible knowledge, everything, you know. But he told me, he said, I no longer, I no longer believe in God. It doesn't matter. I don't, I don't believe in Christ. It doesn't matter. It, whether you pray or you don't pray, it happens the same way. Nothing changes. It doesn't matter. Prayer doesn't change things. And and then he went on to tell me that his baby son had died of a congenital heart defect. And, uh, and it was after that that he abandoned Christ and God uh, because everyone told him it was God's plan. This was God's plan. And, you know, and I heard that a lot too, everybody, you know, I heard that a lot too. And, and it's well-meaning. I understand that we want to talk about God's control and, and I understand that God's in control. But anyway, so this guy wasn't angry. He wasn't angry, but he no longer had faith. So you guess, guess what happened? <laughs> I said, well, let me tell you something. And I told him about Shep and my loss. And you know what? I earned a, I earned a hearing with that young man. And for the next 30 minutes, he and I were, uh, we were going at it. 
and uh, and and it was and he's working, and I'm you know, I'm trying to help him, so I'm not making him late in his work, but we're going at it, and, uh, and and I mean that in a good way. But my my tone is up, his tone is up, and at some point I said, hey hey hey, I'm not mad. My wife says I need to tell everybody that I just get passionate. It sounds like I'm angry. I'm not mad. He goes, I'm not mad either. And uh, <laughs> the other guy stuck his head around the other corner, around the other guys in the other room, stuck his head around the corner, and said, No, y'all aren't mad, but this is good, and. Um, <laughs> You know, and I don't know. I don't know what happened with that young man. I haven't seen him since. I keep hoping to see him again. I don't know whether anything I said made him take a step back towards faith. But I'm telling you, here, here's, here's the lesson of Judas. You can be someone who is, if there's any lesson that applies to us, this is it. And, and I, here, I'm not trying to enter the controversy. I'm not entering the controversy of whether you can be saved and lost. I'm not trying to enter that controversy at all. I'm simply warning us that just because you exercise some degree of faith today or whatever, just because you're walking today doesn't mean you will walk tomorrow. What guarantees you will walk tomorrow is that you persevere in faith, that you continue by faith to walk with Jesus. It's not a, you know, hey, and the reason I say this is because it's true. It's true. People look like Christians and they act like Christians only to at some point fall away. In Hebrews chapter 11, listen. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. I mean, you say what you want, but that passage seems to describe people that are at least at some level exercising some degree of faith and they fall away, and people fall away. So if there's any warning from Judas' life, it would be this to every one of us listening to my voice, including me. We must persevere in faith. We must continue to trust and follow Jesus. So I'm admonishing you. It's not like, oh, I got this in the back pocket, sort of. And again, I'm not trying to get us to worry. It's so hard to walk this balance. Because I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation, but I am trying to get you to say, I'm not going to be Judas. I'm not going to walk away sometime in the future. I am going to persevere in faith with, with the Lord Jesus. Well, why do people fall away? Jesus told a parable, I think, to speak to this. Remember the parable of the four soils? There's a farmer who goes out and he sows seed and he, he sows it in a whole lot different way than they do today. But he would throw it and scatter it. And some of it would land on the hard road and the birds would, would eat it before it ever got in the ground at all. And then the last soil was the really good soil. And the seed got in that soil and it grew up and it brought forth fruit 30, 60, 100 full. But there's two in the middle where the seed falls. And one of them, it says it's really rocky soil with just a really shallow bottom. And, and it says that the, it grew up and it looked wonderful, but as soon as the heat hit it, it didn't have any root and it died back. And then there was the other one that grew up really, really good as well, but it was, it was sown amongst the thistles and the thorns. And when it grew up, the thorns, they, they just got around it and crushed it and killed it. And when the disciples asked Jesus, we don't get that. What does that mean? Well, he said of those two middle soils, he said the heat is persecution. He said people start off well in faith, but when it gets really hard to follow Jesus, 
They fall away. The other group are the people that begin to follow Jesus, but then the cares of the world, money and all of that kind of stuff chokes out their faith and they die back. And we can argue over whether those things were saved. I'm just telling you that Judas is a, is a we, the lesson of Judas is you can have opportunity and it not take root. You can have, you can serve and it not be real. And you can start and it seemed like everything is right, but you not finish. And so I just admonish all of us. Let's just, let's persevere in faith. Let's keep following Jesus. Don't let him, don't let him derail you. And the last thing is, there's a, here's the lesson of Judas. The last one, sorrow for sin is not the same thing as repentance. If there's ever a man who's sorry for his sin, it's Judas, right? I mean, he, man, the man was obviously doubled over with guilt and shame for what he had done. And he really, really wanted to change it, but he couldn't change it. And, and so what does he do? He, with his guilt and shame, he kills himself over. Instead of running to Jesus, he runs and kills himself and consequently lost forever. Peter, on the other hand, also betrayed the Lord. Where did Peter run? Well, we don't know what he did in the, in the days in between his death and the resurrection, but at the moment of his resurrection, guess where Peter runs? He runs to Jesus. He runs to the tomb, right? He runs to see Jesus. So here's, here's the difference that I want you to see. Sorrow, there is a sorrow that leads just to death. I mean, I'm sorry, but it doesn't lead me to repentance to run to Jesus. Judas illustrates you can be really sorry for your sin and still run away from Jesus and not run to him. How could Judas have missed it? How did he miss it? I know it's a rhetorical question. I mean, he was there for the prodigal son story. How did he miss it that he could have run back to Jesus? But he just didn't know Jesus. Peter, on the other hand, runs to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this to the church. He says, I now rejoice, not, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But sorrow of the world produces death. Listen, you know, uh, your your sin that brings sorrow and brokenness or whatever, it needs to lead you back to Jesus in repentance. The old Puritans used to call it the gift of tears. We need the gift of tears. We don't have many tears in our church. I can't remember the last time when we really had tears over, over our sin. I don't know how you get the tears. The Holy Spirit brings conviction on us, but... Let's not be like Judas. Don't let our shame and our sorrow lead us away from him to reject him. In fact, I I know someone that I really believe it was the sin, the shame and the guilt of their sin that led them, instead of to return to the Lord in repentance, it led them to run away from the Lord so that they would get out from underneath the guilt of their sin. Let's bow our heads. In an age when... uh, Many are abandoning their faith that they once professed. And the story of Judas is a great warning to all of us, lest we drift away. The story of Judas equips us to reach out. 
to those who, who may be close to walking away. In fact, in, in Jude's book, in the 22nd verse, uh, it says, be merciful to those who doubt, save, those, save others by snatching them out of the fire. So the story of Judas reminds us that nothing good can come from giving up on Jesus, the supreme value of our lives. Janet, can I ask you just to come to the piano and play something for us uh, for just a few minutes? While Janet's playing something, um, I want to invite you this morning to those of you who have been near Jesus but have never received him. If that happens to be you this morning, you're like Judas and you've been in proximity to Jesus for many years or a few months. Or I want to invite you to come to Jesus today to to um, to receive to receive him and not just be near him but to to do what Judas didn't do and give your heart and your life to Jesus and then I thought some of us may have this week betrayed the Lord Jesus maybe not like Judas maybe not like Peter but We betrayed him when he wanted us to speak up and we didn't. We betrayed him when we participated in something that we know we shouldn't have participated in. I'm not sure what it might be, but um, you betrayed the Lord Jesus and you know that this week. And this is the opportunity to draw near to him this morning, to run back to him in repentance. And, you know, he's always, always ready to receive us in repentance. And then maybe finally, you're here this morning laden with guilt from your sin. And I guess that could be a denial of Jesus. But anyway, I just really want to encourage you to to don't run the opposite way with your shame and guilt, but run to Jesus and let Jesus wash away your sin, your guilt. Give us the gift of tears if we need them. Lord, help us to uh, help us to come to you, run to you, Lord, when maybe we're, we're walking too near the line like Judas. Father, help us to learn the lessons from Judas' life and learn them well. Thank you for our time together with you this morning. And Holy Spirit, as we leave here, just again, just help us this week to you know, to, um, to just walk with you in faith. We pray in Jesus' name, all these things. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.